Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Destination CMO. Our guest today is Josh Golden. I've been really excited to have Josh here on the show. Real powerhouse, chief marketing officer at Quad. And with more than two decades of experience in marketing, branding, media, content, you know, he's really become an expert in how to craft messaging, launch campaigns across a lot of different industries, which is why I'm really excited to have him on. And I'm excited to learn from him, like, how do you actually really start to understand an industry inside and out? And how do you actually tailor your marketing and everything that you're doing to that industry to be able to stand out in the marketplace? And so Quad's history is as a commercial printer and architecting the evolution of Quad as a marketing experience company has been a big part of his journey there. Prior to that, Josh was the publisher and president at Ad Age, a publication that I know many of the viewers of this show read themselves, as well as he was a vice president, global digital marketing at Xerox. Josh, great to have you on the show, buddy. My God, I just got, we got catching on water. I'm so excited <laughs> to be here. What a great intro. And I'm just thrilled to be here with you, Vincent. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's a lot of pivots that people go throughout their career. Yes. And one that you see less often is actually the publisher to the person that is reading that publication. Tell me about what that journey has been like for you. Yeah. When I was at Xerox, I believe, and I got a call to come take a peek at what Advertising Age was doing at the time. And I told the Rance Crane, who was running the publication at the time, he was like, listen, we want to grow what Advertising Age is. And I said, well, the first problem is, is that we're, I still think of it as a trade rag that is about marketing from 1987. And I said, we really need to evolve what it is and make it interesting and innovative. We have to signal that to the marketplace. So I approached it like a marketer rather than a publisher and a president. I was like, I don't, I mean, I could do that, but I don't know what that job was. I knew I loved industry skipping and being in different yep. industries, really being an expert in that and then diving in. And so when I pitched to Rance that I wanted to change it to ad age, which is what everyone called it. And then I said, oh, I want it to be about wisdom and I want it to be about content. I want it to be about excitement, about being with people and raising the level of class for like excitement about being with one another. He was like, wow. He's like, you sound, I think he said, you remind me of my father, GD Crane. I was like, you mean the guy who invented all trade publications like of the universe? And he was like, I was like, it's high praise. But I will tell you that when I joined and we moved that brand from where it was to where it is, and after my five years there, I loved that work. But it's not totally fair to only talk about that because I've done that kind of evolution for a number of different things. It's what I love to do. But switching, I wouldn't say I was a publisher necessarily. I would say I was focused on the marketing evolution of that particular brand, but I had the lucky opportunity to sit in that seat and arguably at the center of the marketing universe, which was just essentially ex exposed yeah. to you like walk away from that experience. I'm sure every single day was just like a learning experience because you're essentially ex exposed to like the forefront of what's happening. And then all your normal guys like me are reading about it the next day right. or the next week afterwards. I mean, the other thing that I think through too, with like ad age is some publications made the jump from print to digital really well. And then mm -hmm. there's certain magazines that I won't name where I still strictly think of them as 
a print magazine and not necessarily a digital asset. Yeah, I think that the, we really thought about when we did the rebrand that I wanted it to feel like when you're watching it on screen, on digital screen or looking at it in an event, for example, I wanted to feel, that's a brand, right? You know, like what does Nike feel like when you're in the Nike store versus where you're wearing it on your shoes or you're at a, I don't know, Nike is a horrible example, but the point is I wanted it to feel like one singular feeling, which is very brand marketing-y. I will tell you that we really thought about how to have the experience of reading it online and how yep. the experience of reading it in book was just as important to have it feel similar, but also have a teeny bit of extra polish in the printed piece because there was still, the marketers were all old enough to want yep. to be like, is this going to be in the book? And of course, I would never choose that because I was not running edit, but I was deeply respectful of the editorial process. But I, I knew there was a value to that. So then we came up with other products to allow us to innovate, to give the benefit of having someone who wants to be in the book to get them in the book. But it was certainly charged at a premium, if you will. Yeah, 100% makes sense because the reading experience, I like how you're thinking about that in terms of the experience, because fundamentally as marketers, experience coming in and experience as you continue becoming a customer or client of mm -hmm. a company. But when I think of publications on one extreme, I'll put Forbes, okay. where you go to the website and banner ads are basically here, 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 yeah. here and everywhere. Right. And the, translating that experience, especially for a magazine, which is visually beautiful, Translating that into a digital experience is oftentimes not easy to be able to do, and typography still goes a long way. But anyway, we're not here to talk necessarily about that. When you take a look at like people who go into a marketing industry, reading at age is like a great way. How you get a primer into an industry because everyone has to start somewhere. What advice do you give for people that either want to pivot into marketing or want to start their career in marketing? I was just reading a LinkedIn post that was just, I just loved them. I'm, I'm repeating it. I should know who wrote it, but it was so interesting. And I always, I'm a big believer in passion. I always think about what you would do for free. Like, what would you do if no one paid you? And you just like, I just love it. And it's hard, of course, to make money with that thing. But if you're already doing the thing that you love and you yep. can start to make a business of doing that thing for people and people will pay you mm -hmm. to it, then it's sort of like you get to do that hard thing or that fun thing with people paying you. When I first started my world, actually I started off in film and TV as my original in my origin. I started off within that space of figuring out how best to tell a story. And it was done, believe it or not, <laughs> during the OJ Simpson trial. And I was responsible for making all the graphic exhibits that were used for the prosecution. I know, right? Crazy. It was what I was asked to do. And I worked for Marsha Clark for a year and a half making those things. And I realized that there were some things I loved about that and making those, it was horrible and violent and frightening, but it was an amazing visible experience for me in the yep. courtroom every day. But I realized I didn't want to continue doing that. So some of the things I say to young people in particular is like, well, whatever you enjoy doing, just go try it for a while. While you, you want to work smarter, just try to work harder for a while. And yeah. if you're still enjoying the working harder piece in the junior levels of the marketing space, you will be noticed as a person who has got a lot of upper mobility and you'll yep. get that next opportunity. I remember when my first job at YNR, I got the opportunity to be an account guy and I was like, I love this account thing. It's the best thing ever. And then I would became successful enough as being an account person as they asked me to run the whole account team. And I was like, amazing. I could run more clients. This is perfect. What I didn't realize was that I was no longer going to run clients, but I was going to run, I was going to run just the people who were running clients. And I was sad, but also I, it gave me the opportunity to have my first big management job. But I was, so that working harder piece, the pedaling faster on the bike, let me kind of start to understand that 
my way of approaching business was I knew I wasn't as good as everyone else. So I wanted to do it faster or more efficiently. And I think that methodology has always left me maybe just feeling like a little bit ahead of everyone else because I'm good at pedaling faster, especially when I get off on a good thing. I'm like, oh my God, this is working. And I can already have the machine going to go quicker. So I feel like younger people coming in should try to do the thing that they really do love and enjoy wherever that happens to be. And then if they can do that thing and then get an opportunity while they're working harder to eventually work smarter, gives them the chance to sort of grow in their job. It's not a perfect design system, but I do believe that you can't train passion. So if you're passionate about something, whatever it is, try to do that thing first. Like if you're passionate about restaurants and eating, go work at a restaurant, see if actually you like doing it. Mm-hmm. Because when you get there, you're like, oh, I, you know, I didn't like this. I was working at the top of the visible moment for the OJ Simpson journal. I was like, this is kind of not the kind of work that I want to do in the long term. <laughs> so I had the chance of getting the most, like at that moment, the most visible job like ever. And I was like, yeah, it's not exactly right. I'm going to switch basic career focuses. Yeah. And careers are oftentimes like not linear, right? You always hear about climbing the corporate ladder and like the mm-hmm. ladder is almost like a really bad analogy because it's almost more like the the shoots and ladders up, down, over, 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 and then up again. My wife refers to my career trajectory as I've been the Marco Polo of industry travel. (laughs) I'm like, I like a little bit of this and I'm going to try hot over here and look at this thing over there. And I just like what I love about where I've gotten to here now that I'm in a quad is the I'm collecting all these wonderful facets from all these terrific, wonderful. And I was at NBC. I was on the agency side. I was at at and I did all these great different brand jobs, plus all these agency opportunities. I collect all that information into a little teeny tiny brain, which is mine. And then I'm able to apply it to a current problem. So I'm not just using one singular through line of an industry's knowledge. I'm using right. multiple faceted pieces of information that are potentially multidimensional and other zip codes that allow me to say like, you know what worked when I was in Arizona? And like, you can try that here. And I think that that kind of thinking, nonlinear thinking helps a brand grow. I think that's 100% right. I think the other thing about marketing that really keeps you humble is that as soon as you feel like you got it figured out, there's definitely one more thing <laughs> that you don't know. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I totally agree with you. I never learned tap dancing. That's not totally true. I did take it when I was like, <laughs> like seventh grade. I was like, I want to try tap dancing. And I realized that it was so hard, <laughs> but like I got just barely okay at it. And I realized, I can't believe I just said that. So anyway, I did. I did tap dancing. Can you imagine that, guys? Anyway, so the point is, I realized once you learn just a teeny sliver of knowledge about something, mm-hmm. you realize just how deep the ocean is. So you learn, when you learn a little bit about something, you know that, oh, now I know how much I don't know. And I am the big believer in, I'm constantly reminding everyone who works with me and I have the benefit of working with that. I don't know everything about your job. I know how to run the orchestra and how to play Beethoven's Ninth, but I do not know how to play the violin. I will tell you that I'm not an expert at playing the violin, but I know what it sounds like when the violin is off tune you know, off key. And I will tell you that that particular insight is really valuable to giving and being a servant leader to individuals in the organization to say like, I don't know how to do the violin or play the violin, but I can tell you what I believe it needs to sound like. Show me how you want to do it. And I think that's the kind of that switching industry piece can give you like, I've heard different orchestras play all over the world. And here's how, how they work it this way. And it allows for insight to be given to individuals. But I do not believe that you should ever pick up the violin and say like, no, like this. A hundred percent. And I think that's one of the big shifts as you grow in your career within marketing is a really just like, it's a switch that you have to be able to navigate through because early in your career, if you own the email channel, you know, that channel 
front and back of your hand, you know, every single number, every single campaign, you know, the tool from a technical standpoint, you know, the analytics front forwards and backwards. And, you know, as your role grows, the job changes and you have to become comfortable as the technology changes as well, letting go of that. And I remember like the exact moment for me when that switched was when the Be Real, the social media app came out. Like I was, I was like, I've never even heard of this Be Real. Like, how is it that a third of my team is using this social media app that I've never heard about it? A week later, I'm like reading about it in the Wall Street Journal and I'm just like, it's happened. I just don't know anymore. And so that definitely is like 100% switch. But to your point, like the servant leadership, at least like before the pandemic, you know, Mm. back when I was in an office and to some extent, I kind of miss like everybody all being in the same room, but I'd pull up a chair. And just ask a ton of questions to try to understand. But to your point, like, I think a big part of it is like placing the right bets on the right people and Mm. then placing the right bets from a budget standpoint on the right campaigns and really like experimenting your way through it. Because there are campaigns where I'm just like, that is the dumbest idea ever. There's no way that that's going to work. And then it's like our best lead generating campaign of the entire year. The safe bets are not the safe bets because something changed and Facebook or Meta changed this thing and it just completely broke all of it. And I think that's part of the growth as a marketing leader is just like, digging in and like leaning towards the experimentation to be able to guide you as opposed to always being set and having your own opinion on. I totally agree. And hearing, just hearing you talk about, I had this hunger of getting back in the office and I'm in the quad office. We designed a New York office during the pandemic. It's on 16th and Irving. And I come in three to four days a week, but there's different work that I get done on the day that I'm not in the office or traveling Mm -hmm. or whatever. And I really appreciate I will tell you that I learned like, oh, I get different work done on the day that I'm not in the office mm-hmm. and there is a pace change and a thoughtfulness that happens. Yeah. And I never had the benefit of even knowing that existed. So I don't want to thank that time, although it was really great to be with my family constantly. Hybrid is the new way to go. Hybrid is a hundred percent like the way to go. Specifically for young people. I feel like it's so important that they need to know what it's like. You don't learn if you don't have the chair pulled up next to you. Like, let me walk you through this. Or me, like I went to one of my younger colleagues and I said, I'm going to try to post something smart on TikTok. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that this looks like of current, like it's now. And I just, I never, I know how to post on every other platform really, really well, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to make certain that I was doing it the right way. So I think relying on those people who happen to be here, we do a hybrid environment. And I find those days in the office are so awesome and energetic. And I feel enthusiastic in the hallway conversation. You cannot undersell the importance of the hallway conversation. You can't replace it. And the Zoom meetings are so transactional. Like you get on, you talk about the thing and you're like, take care, Josie. And then that's it. There isn't any warm up. There isn't any cool down. There isn't any, I was thinking about this moment where you're like leaving the meeting where you're chatting on your way out. I think that's, that's lost in the hybrid environment complete or the lost in its virtual environment only. That's why the hybrid moment, I really rely on making things functional and making it purposeful that we're together for a meeting and making feel people feel like there's a good reason to be there, but also just like, let's have drinks and remember what it was like to be social. Yeah. In an ideal world, everything that needs to be said in a meeting is said in the meeting in the real world. Sometimes it's the short meeting after the meeting where you get the real scoop, the real insight. You actually really understand like what's happening in the business and what the barriers are that need to get lifted. And the second thing is I think cross-functional relationships like have not built out the same way in this Zoom world 
in a highly matrixed organization, your cross-functional partners, you build a better relationship, I think, in person, because otherwise it is oh. very transactional. You might be on one or two meetings with a specific person that in an office could be somebody that you walk by every single day, but your work might not overlap enough. But in those like one or two areas, like your work might be very critical. I know. And so I think that you can, I don't know. I don't know if you can't, but like, it's hard. You have to go and be in person with people and be present and listen. And I just find that to be like such an important part of the marketing in particular, that whiteboard that I keep back there is because like we sit here and work out a problem and it's really hard to do a work out a problem. Like you and I could whiteboard something and you'd be, you're watching me right on the whiteboard. But if you can't grab the pen and be like, no, like this, it's not the same kind of opportunity. Yeah. I keep getting targeted on Instagram for this digital whiteboard company. And it's like a stock video of these seven people sitting around this table and they have this like digital whiteboard where it looks like a Microsoft Visio chart on this whiteboard. And I'm just like, I was like, you guys are much better whiteboarders than I am because my white. Yeah. I got the, the gradation like, Oh, you did nice shadowing on that. How'd you do that? <laughs> Crossed it out. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I would say that all those tools are not real. Although I will tell you, I've changed over from a book to a electronic book, a remarkable. And I found that I don't really use a book. I don't look back at my notes a lot. What I do though, is I make those notes into like, protein based, like these are the four things yeah. from today. And that's what I refer to. It's almost like I'm like in high school again and rewriting my notes. Like this is what happened today. These are the four things I need to remember. And mm-hmm. that's the thing that's like, what I can use with a digital based tool like this is it, it creates a nice opportunity for, because for me, the process of remembering something and also to show respect and genuflection is I'm mm-hmm. writing a note down and then it's in my head. And then yeah. if I needed to refer to it, I can find it. But I think that it's a really a statement that I'm not missing looking back. You know? I tried to make that jump a few years ago to something that's digital. And maybe I just need to try again. The closest that I got is Moleskin, which I assume everybody knows Moleskin is the company mm-hmm. that makes the notebook. They have a digital version where there's little dots on the page. And basically the way it works is like you write on it with a normal pen. But then after that, you snap photos into a Moleskin app. And then it digitizes, uses OCR, and then you can actually search for a word and it'll tell you what page it was. My handwriting is so horrible. It's just a tablet with no internet connectivity, except it backs it up with Wi-Fi. And then the the brilliant part about it is they made the pencil have some friction. So it feels like if you're writing it, it doesn't feel like like my my Mont Blanc, but it it does the job. And I've been using it quite successfully. Maybe I need to check it out. This episode has been bought to you by Remarkable. (laughs) Remarkable. Make sure to use your coupon code, Josh Golden, for 10%. (laughs) I'm just kidding. There's no coupon code. Doesn't exist, guys. Go sign up for their email list and you can get the coupon code just like everybody else. And then you can unsubscribe right after that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you think through like experimentation, how do you think about like setting up an experiment? the right way. You know, I can tell you vision of bad is we just launch it and we don't even know what the heck we're measuring or whether our analytics is even set up to be able to capture that thing. Mm. Opposite of bad is you have too much data and you can't narrow it down to the thing, the North star that you're actually building towards. What's the framework you think for a good So I don't have a real good model for this, but I will tell you that the way that I tend to think about it is always I focus on the experimentation piece. I'm always thinking about what is the need 
that we're trying to serve. I'm having an audience problem, or I'm having an awareness problem, or I'm having a, a cost problem, whatever the problem is from a marketer's perspective. So you, you think about all the different ways that particular problem could be solved. Sometimes it's with the products a quad might have, or maybe it's outside the box. The truth is you have to think about all the different ways that they might solve an awareness problem. And what I take a surgical approach. I'm sorry, Dara Tresseter gave me this. She's the now the CMO of Autodesk. And I just loved it. She's like, I use gut first. So you want to rely on what you believe and then use data to prove whichever thing is going to work. So experimentation for me is always like, what would I personally, Josh Golden, actually do? Which event would I actually go to? Which headline would I actually read? Because yeah. I am in the focus group one. I am a CMO. I'm right. running a large $3 billion plus dollar brand. And also, I am a reader of content. So I'm yep. making content for marketers. So I'm kind of in a, a small little overlap, right? And I think about experimentation of, I want to make certain that I believe in fact that I would, I know it's horrible, focus group one, it's the worst way marketers operate, but everyone gets to choose what thing that they in fact would go, you know, do. So you use that yeah. gut level first, and then you use data to prove which one was the most effective based on the needs of what you're trying to measure out, whether it's cost per lead or, or is it dollars or is it visits or whatever the heck it is, right? And then with the gut plus the data, you end up having a pretty clear outcome within a certain amount of time to know what experiments are going to work. But I'm a little more surgical than that because I don't just go with like, let's just come up with spaghetti on the wall. I really try to think like this thought mm -hmm. is probably, I go in with a hypothesis and I make the data prove me wrong. I think this one's going to work, but I try to keep it clean. Like I'm sure I want to give everyone the shot of winning. I, I don't know, maybe 25% of the time I'm surprised, like, oh, the other headline worked better. And yeah. that's so simple, right? A headline, but like sometimes it's a big thing. Like, should right. we do an AI tool or should we figure out, should we go buy another thing? That's too hard, but you have to kind of gut it out. Like, which one do I think I would prefer to get from or have or develop or purchase? Because I'm in the middle of it, in the center, of like, and also in my past job, sitting at the center of what I was effectively the marketing universe allows me to kind of know like these are still the key topics. And we saw, like you mentioned, be real, but like NFTs and that was a flash in the pan and marketers are really attracted to this. And if what? I don't even remember this. <laughs> What's an acronym, right? Yeah. I think the problem <laughs> is that we are, marketers are endlessly attracted right. to a shiny object, right? A hundred percent. And it's a hard thing to... And know, it's really unfortunate, too, like when you really want something to take off. There's a lot of good... Yeah, like you want it. Like I did all this work. Oh, my web, like my blog was supposed to be the next thing. The truth is some of those things do work, but there are big differences between a gen AI platform and NFTs. There was, 100%. There was something about NFTs that I was always looking out of the corner of my eye. I'm like, how was that a thing? Like, I get it. That was it right there. It was, this is really cool, but why? And the irony of it to me is like, if you apply that to real artwork, actually, I take that back. Bad choice of words. NFT, 100% our artwork. It's the pump and dump element of it yeah. that really made things dangerous. But oil canvas, today it gets sold through Sotheby's and there's no trail for ownership authenticity, like the blockchain applied to physical artwork actually is a really great application. That's better. Of, That's of better. Blockchain. That's more logical because we can all see that working, or at least some could see that working, but just yeah. having blockchain artwork felt a little wide to me versus, you know, you look at the a chat GPT, for example, and I was like in November, okay, stop the presses because this is going to change every single thing that we're doing. As a matter of fact, I remember telling my kids who are 15 and 14, I was like, I recognize that the school teachers are going to tell you all 
to not use this because they don't want to cheat. Yeah. But I say, what's the difference between this and a calculator or this is a computer? I think of this as yeah, a co-pilot. The teachers are using it to grade. If yeah, right. The teachers can use like, it hey, to grade. Put this in there. Exactly. So I want everyone who's hearing this and in the sound of this yeah. podcast to understand not only is it going to change your job, but mm-hmm. you should absolutely use it every time you're starting something, as long as it isn't like yeah. legally questionable at this point, because it's still at this point is like we can't use like anything imagery based because it's everyone owns everything. But there's still a question mark on legality. But like when you're exploring a new topic and you want to know how to format a thank you note, if you will, because a uh, side note, don't hire anyone who doesn't have a thank you note because it's the whole idea of being thankful is important. But if you don't know how to write a thank you note, you can go into ChatGPT and be like, write a thank you note to Josh Golden, thanking him for these three things, and it will format a thank you note. It'll be close enough. And then you'll edit it, so it's yours. But like that basic stuff, no longer do you have to worry about, well, what does a format of a thank you note look like? You got that. It's done. So now 50% of the work is done, and you're just editing. That's so much easier than creating from whole cloth. 100% agree. And I think there's like a key thing that you said there, and this is a make- mistake that I've seen some people make, which is if you're in an autonomous car and that autonomous car is about to go off of the end of a cliff, like you got to grab the wheel, you got to take it. Yeah. And the generative AI is the exact same thing. If you are, this generative AI is not a product marketer. It doesn't know the ins and outs of the product that it's writing about. Right. It's generative AI. And right. so you have to go in and there and correct it for sure. On the topic of experimentation, this is where for me, like the generative AI has been most impactful is the ability to be able to go in and say, brainstorm 35 different versions of this headline. We talked about like a headline earlier and it's not always as simple as a headline, but the variations that it comes up with are the equivalent of the pull 20 people into the room, give everybody a stack of post-it notes, everybody write down everything you can think of and put it on the wall. You essentially get that after 30 seconds now. I totally agree. So strong for that. But I will tell you the one piece that I add on to, for instance, then the whole world of prompt generating. One is like, I'm a fan of alliteration. Just love it. So when I'm working on a name for something, it's hard for me with my brain Mm-hmm. to come up with 50 different things that all are alliterative that are in this sort of brief that I've given the chat GPT engine, whatever. And I could never do more than four and it comes up with 30 in 10 seconds. So just that. So A, it's on brief. B, they'll suck. But B, they are all alliteration. So there's one or two or three maybe if they're 30 that I'm like, oh, I, I don't hate that one, but I change a little bit or I make it past tense or something. That, so it feels like, oh, it's that one works better if it's this way. But that's the piece, the co-pilot piece that I feel like I like that thought for people to start to think about the AI platform as constantly sitting next to you and always able to be helpful to you, but it's not going to deliver the full product. You have mm-hmm. to finish it, but it will start it. And that, I don't know, man, for me, it's like, that's, I don't know, sometimes it's seven tenths of the work. Like I can't even get this rolling. I have to figure out like, how do I even start this? And it helped. I have more recently I've stopped because I haven't had the luxury of time. But if I had to write a deck, I would absolutely start with like, the give me the 10 headlines for this particular topic. If it was something I completely didn't know about. I just threw into chat GPT, give me 15 examples of a name <laughs> for a new podcast hosted by Vincent and Josh where the titles and alliteration. I got to admit, number one, Josh's varsity views is actually pretty I mean, good. I would do that. I would tell you all about college. I think Whimsy Cold Wednesdays might be more fun, though. Oh, yeah, because I could come up with Whimsy. Me, (laughs) you and me, and we'll do a lot of Whimsy. I like shenanigans, though. Anything with uh, shenanigans sounds like more fun. (laughs) Whimsy sounds unimportant, but shenanigans seems like it's purposeful joy creation. Yeah, there's a lot of these like headlines right now that is like, 
the prompt writing is a new career. And if you are a prompt writer, you could make $300,000 a year writing prompts. And I think, number one, it's unfortunate that those are the titles in these articles that are getting clicks because it really misses the important part, which is we are in an age right now where every single person who's a college student is learning how to write prompts. This is the probably number one new skill students are learning today mm-hmm. and with that workforce hitting their careers i mean it is a complete fundamental change if you don't if you're already in the workforce and you haven't played with prompt writing yourself and there's so many to your point like personal applications where even if you work inside of a company that says for security reasons we cannot feed our proprietary data into generative ai it is our firewall is blocking the website. You can absolutely download the OpenAI app on your personal cell phone and use it for personal things. Yeah, that's the risk, of course. But the benefit there, of course, is you had with a company like Quad, for example, we have so much data and the capacity for to share that data is risk. So you have to limit that so it doesn't necessarily give the person the ability to download the data and then put it into an infrastructure and and sure, get some amazing insights out of it, but that's not what we need to be using this for because we're our job is to protect that. And we've put a policy in place that makes certain we're protecting that. Yeah. And even that is only a matter of time. Microsoft and others have already said that they're building private instances of this where the prompts that you're feeding in are not being used for training and they're not stored. And so where there is a way to monetize with an enterprise tool, there is a company that is willing to sell an enterprise license. That will be it. We keep talking about Quad GPT, given the quantity of content we create and content at scale that we create for 3,000 clients or so. Thinking about how every, just like, I don't know, say the direct mail, for example, one of our divisions, we send 9% of the country's mail. And that includes catalogs and magazines. And thinking about what if you got a different catalog or a piece of direct mail for every single person we send something to. Yep. That's an enormous shift, massive shift that could happen. And it's going to happen for sure. Oh, you're good. And I think that's like the most fascinating thing. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day who's in the film space and they were saying, you know, Hey Vincent, like the thing you got to realize is that today you go out and you watch a movie and the movies target different niches. You know, the Barbie movie is attracting a different person than a Marvel movie. And in the future, you can walk into a location in LA that does a full body scan. You read a 15 minute script. And in that future world, a video could be generated for you, but you're also in that movie. And like, that is wild. Like absolutely nuts. nuts. And like, I could hundred percent see a world where it's like a choose your own adventure where you're watching this movie on Netflix and they're like, do you want to open this door or that door? Press a button on the screen and let's Didn't see what happens. Did they do that in the Black Mirror, the last episode of last season? Where you could choose, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you a could perfect choose. example. But imagine if it got to the level of they knew your IP of your house and your zip code. And then they started to use imagery that was pulled from Google maps and it made it imagine how much more scary that would be. (laughs) Suddenly if there was a helicopter image that was woven into the imagery of who was coming to get you. Yeah. And I just, in a horror movie, it's like um, possible. Why wouldn't they, why couldn't they have that? Yeah, I mean, you could 100% do that. I mean, remember the TV show Fear Factor? Like, imagine yeah. Imagine a horror movie, and the thing on the other side of the wall is literally the thing that you fear the most, most in the of. world. 
Yeah. Right. That was the Steven Spielberg brilliance behind Poltergeist. It knows yeah. what you're afraid of. Don't help it. I mean, <laughs> by the way, my children watched that movie and they were like, this isn't scary at all. And I was like, <laughs> this movie scared the bejesus out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> but with now the CGI and effects, it looks like, you know, not totally yeah. scary, I guess. It has to look real. Yeah. Two questions for you on like other trends that you're seeing right now. What is the biggest shift that you're seeing outside of generative AI, like in terms of a trend that marketers should be watching today, if they're not already, what would that be? I would say the far and away winner would be anything generative AI driven. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be one through nine. I'm still a big believer. And I think we'll always be on the list. The trends that are most important, I think that are still relevant and will be relevant forever is whom you get to do your work with and the Mm -hmm. talent that you're able to collect. It's looking at the shedding of the entertainment industry and how the tech industry is compressing in size. And one of the best things about being at a company that's growing and growing a story for marketing is the focus on the who you do it with. I feel tremendously fortunate that I get to endlessly work with people that choose to be here every day and actively saying, I want to do this hard thing. I joke about it being a Sisyphean task, but I think that marketing is always pushing the rock. It is always hard. It is always the same rock or similar rock. You're always doing a pushing. It's not like, oh, it's downhill now. It's so easy. No, we'll always marketer's job is always changing. It's always getting more complex. But if you get to do it with people that you enjoy yeah. every day, it makes like, yeah, it's hard, but like, at least I'm doing with these wonderful people. And yeah, yeah I choose to do that. So I think that, yes, the trend of technology and how that will enhance our work and make it better. It's awesome. But the importance of humans that you surround yourself with, I think is always going to play a critical role. And for me, it's something that I celebrate. And I tell all of my people who work with me endlessly, how much I deeply appreciate and value their input. And I don't believe that to think that there's a, everyone always, it's the shiny object syndrome. Like, what are you going to focus on now? But if you forget about the people that you want to do the thing with, You'll have skipped your life because it's all like a third of it is working optimally. And you want to make sure you're doing that with people that you really enjoy. Yeah, that really stands out to me too. Like when I think back through like critical teammates that I've spent past few years with, I could think of a few examples where somebody came in, joined the team as an event marketer. And then actually, I think when I left that team, they were a content marketer and they kind of just a hundred percent just like grew in their role and their interests changed. And I can exactly think of another example where somebody came in as an ad buyer and when they left, they were an organic lead gen. Right. And because they had a passion for it, they wanted to do it. And it's awesome to see that growth. It's happening on my team actively. Like I see people who are, I try to give a little bit of headroom for people like, try this. I tell this to young people when I teach it at Columbia or at NYU. And I say, try to do as much of your boss's job that he or she will let you do. And it will let you have that chance of like, I see him or her struggling with not struggling, but like they're not able to do that thing as quickly as I can. So I'm just going to do it. And then you give it to them. And that basically you're doing their homework. When people do that for me, I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. I was struggling with that. How did you know I was struggling? Like I saw you couldn't do the thing. And then you just did it. And it's awesome. So having that be an instinct that we can train in young people is another great idea for how to be better and be better at supporting people that you're working with. Yeah. And I saw a great article to that effect the other day that was talking about parental leave, where mm-hmm. traditionally, like you look at parental leave as, hey, so-and-so is going to be gone. How are we going to 
keep things going? What's the plan there? If like you flip your thinking to treating parental leave as a developmental opportunity for somebody to really grow, then it's a completely different reframe, but it also pulls a really great benefit out as well. I have heard you throw Uh-oh. around the phrase frictionless marketing. Tell me a little bit more about frictionless marketing and how a marketer can apply that to the work that they're doing today. Well, the idea for Quad, because of it started off in manufacturing and its history, it really started off solving the problems for marketers. It was much more around manufacturing and mm-hmm. making something. And more recently, they've acquired many different agencies and different solutions that allowed for those marketers to have different problems solved for them that they didn't even realize Quad could do. The thing that I've recognized is that, or that I came to recognize after my two years, is that having all those exist in one place that is uniquely it's Midwestern in its values, its focus on delivering the best outcomes for clients, and it puts us in this, I think, a differentiated position that allows for us to provide something that ordinarily you have to go to five or six different partners to get to done. We can do with one partner and it gets the objective of the marketer to have their job done a little bit easier with a few less partners and potentially less expensively and more efficiently. So that yeah. frictionless idea, it actually came out of a podcast that I listened to. I can't remember the name of it, but I will in a moment. But it was a podcast that was all focused on either adding friction to a system or removing it from a system. If you add friction to a system, something becomes more difficult to do. If you remove it from a system, it becomes easier. For example, if you want to work out in the morning, like if you're desperate to work out in the morning, if you sleep in your workout clothes, when you wake up in the morning, you're like, well, I'm already in my workout clothes. It's actually less friction for me just to go work out. It's actually less friction for me just to 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 it's actually less friction friction for me just to it's actually less 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 friction for me just to it's actually 
actually less friction for me just to it's 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 act this has been destination cmo hosted by vincent fan fan because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear destination cmo invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.